Hi, everyone. I'm Sean Mosen. Welcome to the Agatsu Physical Culture Podcast. My guest today is a martial arts pioneer, Rodney King, all the way from South Africa. Thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, Sean. Appreciate it, man. Oh, no, it's great. You know what? I've actually wanted to talk to you for a very long time. I heard about you. I was trying to figure it out, you know, as we were getting closer to the date where you were going to come on the show. I was trying to remember when exactly I heard about you. And I started to think, man, this really goes back because, you know, many, many years ago, like pre, pre-UFC, before the UFC broke, uh, if, you know, people that are listening, I know it's hard for people that are coming up in martial arts now to understand this, but there was a time before the UFC where, you know, everybody believed in the ninja death touch. Everyone knew that a Kung Fu guy from this temple would beat this guy and all this stuff. So during that time, I was trying to find practical martial arts. I was trying to find stuff. I, I got introduced to different guys and different guys research like Tony Blauer. And, and there were some guys, you know, in the UK that were doing some interesting stuff, some doormen that were doing things that seemed more practical than traditional martial arts. And in that small circle of people that were doing really something interesting and maybe innovative that was different from the traditional martial arts, I found you. But at the time, there wasn't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe my research was bad, but there wasn't, I couldn't get too many great examples, especially video of what you were doing. You, you wrote articles, you were, people were talking about crazy monkey and talking about you. And I knew there was something interesting about the way you were blocking, moving and putting things together. But I couldn't really, it's not like it is now where I can see things on YouTube and, you know, you can, you know, follow all these online platforms and that. So um, when did you kind of get started uh, before you get to like what I found and start with the uniqueness of it? What brought you to the martial arts? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, if I go back all the way until I was, you know, probably a young kid, I grew up on the south side of Johannesburg. It's yep. similar to the projects in the United States. So it's government housing. And, you know, as anywhere in those kinds of environments, I had to endure the n- neighborhood gangs, the bullies at school. And my mother was a raging alcoholic. She was really abusive. And so my earliest memories were trying to find a way to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And so like probably any kid back in those days, and, you know, we, what are we talking here? Jeez, I don't know probably the early 80s, there wasn't a whole lot of options available, especially in South Africa. And so the most common thing that you could go and do was karate. Right. And that's kind of what I started with. I continued actually with that for quite a long time. I got two second hands in karate. I went on to compete for the South African military karate team when I was in the army. So I did that for a very, very long time. But what was the styles of karate that you did? Um, So I did uh, uh, Kyukushin Kai. Yeah, was the one karate style that I did. And then I did Shotokan, but then the instructor that was doing Shotokan changed over to a different system, was kind of an amalgamation of different things. And so that was kind of my time just working kind of in the karate field. Um, And then I think ultimately that's kind of what attracted me, right, is that I wanted to learn how to protect myself. And the thing that really stood out for me was those old Chinese kung fu movies, right, where you kind of saw this unassuming guy that ultimately became the hero, but initially had no skills, he had no physicality, and through training kung fu, he became able to defend himself and ultimately was able to beat the bad guys. And so that was the thing that really attracted me. That's the reason why I wanted to get involved in martial arts because it seemed like that was the solution. It seemed like if I went and I trained martial arts, I'd actually be able to protect myself. And so that was kind of the initial, I guess, reason, the impetus for me stepping into the martial arts world. Mm-hmm. And so then why not stay in karate? Did you find, like, what do you feel that you got from karate? And what do you feel if you feel something was missing? Because obviously you started, you transitioned to boxing at some point and you started looking at other things. Yeah. So probably around, you know, probably around 16 years old, I noticed in my high school that, you know, and, and again, you know, I was in a really rough area. It's really impoverished area. There were a lot of rough kids, you know, and fighting was a daily occurrence. And I noticed that, in my school, in my high school, the kids that seemed to get left alone, like people didn't touch them, they didn't mess with them, were the kids that did boxing. Mm-hmm. And I found that very interesting. And you could be, you know, you could be doing like I did karate and stuff like that, but people would still mess with you. Still, People would still try to pick on you. But the boxing guys were left alone. And 
I, I didn't really understand that in the beginning, but then I started doing boxing and then I realized why, you know, one of the things of course, doing boxing is that it's the contact, right? I mean, you get in there, you play, you play the game for real, you go up mm-hmm. against real opponents um, where a lot of times, especially when I was doing kind of more the traditional karate styles, although there were some really great things in there, it tended to be a lot of emphasis on kata and then a lot of the competitive side of it was semi-contact. Right. Yeah, like right. the real fight is rough. Like you can, you yeah, can I did punch to the chest, that was, but you're not punching in the face. Yeah, but Kyokushin Kai came in much later, you know. Okay. So my, my kind of my starting point was Shotokan. That's right. kind of where I was. And then I stayed with this particular instructor that, like I said, he changed over and kind of went into more of a hybrid style of karate. Um, but for the most part, it was still kind of semi-contact. And it was right. really more around about the time that I started doing boxing that I started looking at more full-contact karate. Right. Because I started to really start to understand that, you know, if you want to learn how to protect yourself, you need to be actually playing the game. You actually have to get in there and you have to, in essence, you have to fight. Right. And that was the thing that attracted me to boxing. And so I started boxing probably around about 16, somewhere around then. I, I, I trained for a very long time under a very well-known coach in South Africa has now passed away, Willie Tawil, who was a bronze medalist at, the, at uh, I think it was the Helsinki Olympics. And uh, went on to do pretty well in boxing and carried on boxing into to my early 20s. But then I was kicked out of the house when I was about 17. So it was before my 18th birthday. My mother kicked me out of the house. It was a raging alcoholic. It came to her head. And so ultimately, she basically said, get out the house and never come back. Mm-hmm. So I never finished high school. I had nowhere to go. I was sleeping on the streets. Actually, first night I remember vividly, I was sleeping on a park bench, the same park I used to play in as a kid and also the park I used to go to to escape the neighborhood you know, gangs. And you know, I was kind of lying, you know, lying there looking at the stars, you know, kind of almost like a cliche and thinking, well, you know, my life's ended. I mean, what am I going to do? And I had no idea. And ultimately what, what it led me to doing was basically signing up early for the military because back in those days in South Africa, you had to go to compulsory military service. Okay. But if you were under 18, you could go in at 17 if you were turning 18 in that, in that year and there weren't too many months apart from that. And I was literally about, I don't know, you know, six months away from, from turning 18. And uh, in order for me to do that, though, I had to get parental consent. So I actually forged my mother's signature on the forms and got into the military early. And then once I was in the army, I fought for the South African military, or at least my unit for the South African military karate team. I traveled around the country competing, which was kind of cool. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of like where I started to figure out as well that, you know, this whole idea of what it really takes to be able to defend yourself. Cause I landed up in the VIP protection unit, which is the bodyguarding group. We also got training and counterinsurgents operations. Um, and so I got to see some stuff that kind of just really, you know, solidified in my mind what it's going to take in order to actually protect yourself. And right. so once I got out of the, the military, I, I mean, I, I didn't finish high school, so nobody would employ me. And I had these skills that, uh, you know, what are you going to do with them? And the only job that I could find was as a doorman. And so I ended up being a bouncer. And then I bounced for about seven years. And I would say it was that seven years more than any other experience in my life that was the turning point for me. Because once I was working the door, once I was actually in the fray of interpersonal violence, so to speak, on a nightly basis, year in and year out, I really got to see what interpersonal violence is all about and what it actually takes in order to be able to achieve success in that arena. And so this is what really shaped kind of almost everything was out of necessity as all the great things, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll hear people say, Oh, this guy made such brilliant moves uh, to end up where he is today. And then you find out, you know, when you talk to them, it's like, well, uh, sometimes out of necessity, they ended up going in this direction because they, they almost, you know, they had no choice. It was, that was the way to survive was to do this. And it could be in life or in, in business or in, uh, you know, in their training. But so you yeah. were constantly um, having to use martial arts in a real way. So you were always looking to improve it. But I find what's interesting is there's a lot of people that grow up in, you know, in a tough situation, in tough neighborhoods. They find the martial arts. They find certain things uh, because of that situation. But yet they don't uh, end up really evolving and developing something their own. 
they they become good at you know i've known guys that you know came up in a bad neighborhood and uh, they fought with taekwondo and they made taekwondo work for them they were just tough guys and they were fast and they they didn't really improve upon taekwondo and they, they were just like gritty guys and that's the skill set they had but you know you starting off with karate and you you going to boxing and but yet you somehow still take these things and you work them so there must have been some drive in you to refine it was it because you really wanted to refine it for yourself or at some point were were you teaching it to other people that forced this refinement i look i think initially it was refinement was for myself right i mean if i kind of reflect back i mean i was not the kind of kid that would go out and look for trouble I mean, if I look at my children now, my boys, they remind me a lot of myself when I was a child, except I was never allowed to be that kind of child. And what I mean by that is, for example, my boys are, I can call them artists, musicians, you know, they, they play drums, they, they, they in a band and things like that. You know, th that's the kind of thing I really wanted as a kid, yeah. but it was never available to me. I mean, it was very clear to me early on growing up that, how smart you were was completely irrelevant. How tough you were was the only thing that mattered. Mm -hmm. And so becoming tough was the only thing on my mind because at the end of the day, if I wasn't able to fight back, I was just going to be basically bullied for the rest of my life. Or at least that's how it felt. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't a fighter and because I sucked at it, I mean, really, really bad, that was probably one of the reasons why I kind of set this mission in my mind to find a way that was going to work for me. And so I went into karate and, you know, there were things in karate that worked really well. There were a lot of things that I felt didn't work so well. Um, immediately, once you're actually in a real fight and you have to defend yourself, I felt that a lot of the stuff that I trained in the dojo just did not come out in reality. Mm -hmm. Boxing to me was kind of almost the natural step after that because boxing put me in a situation where I had to confront my inner fears and I had to go up against opponents that in essence were trying to knock me out. And that resembled more of a real fight to me than semi-contact karate. Right. And then, like I said, at that time, I started delving into Kyukushin Kai because I realized that at least in that form of karate, it was, full, it was relatively full contact, although, yep. of course, you can't punch the person in the face. But at the end of the day, again, it resembled more closely to the fight and the reality than what I had got through my traditional training. And then even once, you know, once I got out of the army, and, and that's an interesting story in itself. I mean, I actually ended up becoming the hand-to-hand -hand combat instructor for my unit. So I was the, the guy that taught the other soldiers, you know, unarmed combatives training. But once I got out of the army, just by chance, I met this guy and he told me about this thing called Muay Thai. I'd never heard of Muay Thai. Didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and he explained it to me. He showed me a few things. He was actually an exchange student from Turkey. He was out here in, in uh, Johannesburg. He was at one of the universities. And he showed me a few things. And then I, you know, I kind of, my, it was a light bulb moment right now. All of a sudden there's elbows and there's knees and it's yeah. things that I hadn't really seen before. And I thought to myself, you know what? I, I got to go to Thailand. I, I've got to get on a plane and go. I've never left the country. I fresh out of the military, had a bit of money left over. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to spend this money, go to Thailand, go and train. I'll figure out what I need to do when I get back. And that's what I did. And I went to Thailand for the first time. I think it was probably, if I remember correctly, I think it was 1992, 93, somewhere around there. And I spent three months in Thailand, in Rayong, in a province, just it's about two hours drive from Bangkok. And I spent three months in a Muay Thai camp, just training Muay Thai. And then came back and delved in anything and everything that I could find. You know, it didn't matter what it was. I did some full contact stick fighting. I did a whole bunch of different things that I don't necessarily talk about. And I don't put it up on a bio up on my site, but I've done tons of stuff. And ultimately what I was looking for all the time was a far more intelligent way to work the fighting skills in interpersonal violence, at least for a kind of person like me that I didn't see myself as a natural born fighter. Because I believe that there are people like that. I mean, when I was growing up, it was quite evident that there were people that were very, very skilled at violence. They were very good at it. It was almost like it was their calling. I just mm -hmm. wasn't one of those, those guys. I wasn't one of those kids. And so once I got into bouncing, that was really the massive light bulb moments. Because for the first two years, I was really just trying to survive there. 
I mean, just, you know, you think you know what fighting is, but it's completely different in the dojo or even in a boxing ring. And now suddenly you find yourself in an environment where a lot of the times you're, you're dealing with multiple opponents. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, you're not just dealing with multiple opponents, opponents, now you're dealing with weapons. So it's a whole lot of other stuff being thrown into this experience. And so it was those several years that really started creating my ideas around what ultimately became Crazy Monkey Defense. So it was kind of like the laboratory where everything, you know, you're constantly testing and refining and then having all these experiences that are true, that are outside of the, the dojo, outside, off the mat, and they're refining. Yeah, but- yeah absolutely. It was the lab. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I, I guess... Sometimes it's really difficult to talk about that period. I don't know if that makes sense because like one of the things I don't like to do is I don't like to glorify violence. I don't like mm. to talk about it in a way that it seems like it's some kind of romantic thing, you know? That it's oh, a- for sure. And especially look in this kind of like in the, the you know, martial arts, uh, people who market martial arts, they usually do it in one of, you know, two ways, because let's face it, these ways are very successful. You are either the super secret uh, clan member who's the grandmaster who has been handed down from blah, 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 and you have all the secrets, or you're the biggest badass in the world, and uh, you market what a badass you are by just sitting there talking about, you know, like, oh, I've had, you know, 500 street fights, and I've had this, and I've had that. But on the other hand, you know, when somebody has had experiences, experience give credibility, you know, uh, the, the Gracie's, you know, I know you do jujitsu, you teach jujitsu, um, you know, the Gracie's became the Gracie's because of experience and that experience, uh, shaped their martial art. So it's important to understand that experience and it's important to hear about it and know that it's a thing and that's where it comes from. So it's, it's, again, it's also important, you know, like you said, it's great that you talk about it in a certain way that you're not trying to glorify it and everything that you're teaching is to help people to deal with violence, not to perpetuate it. So, you know, I get, I I can understand not wanting to kind of talk about it in the way that it's like, Hey, so great. I I had so many encounters as a doorman, but on the other hand, that shaped what you, what you do and what you do is very different. And I've read online sometimes people describing what you do. And I, I think from, at least from my limited perspective, they're very off base because they, they will look and see for, for people that are listening that maybe haven't seen what, when we're talking about crazy monkey, you might see video clips and see, you know, uh, Rodney covering his head and he's kind of shelling and he's might maybe doing something that you've seen similar in another martial art or in boxing or in, as a defense, but, it is not the same thing because the way you put it together and the way you explain it is very different than anything I've seen. So like, yes, I have seen, you know, even jujitsu instructors say, Hey, a guy throws a hook. You can throw the hand up like this. You can shoot in, you can take him down. That's great. But that is not the same thing. That is just a flash moment that they're teaching in a a possible encounter. The way you approach it is you have thought out how to use this as a platform to staying safe at different ranges and how to engage and disengage with somebody at different ranges using it. That's very different than someone saying, oh, I've seen that move before. It's like, well, the move doesn't matter. I've seen people cover their head that way, but I've not ever heard anybody explain it the way you do. So all of your experience has brought you to this unique way of putting this martial art together. Yeah, I think, you, look, you nailed it. I, I, that's ultimately what it comes down to. And I guess this is my biggest argument with people all the time is that a lot of times people will make a uh, decision or they will comment on something based on a two-minute clip, right? Yeah. And one of the things I try to really get across to people, especially when I'm teaching seminars, and, and I say to them, look, you could copy my defensive action. And it, you know, it might make what you do a little bit better, but it's not going to make it great. And the reason is, is because you don't understand the system that it's coming from. Yeah. I've actually taken the time to actually develop a system where I, I'm talking about, okay, when I'm at the outside, I'm doing this. When I'm in the mid range, I'm doing this. When I'm in close quarter, I'm doing this. And there are specific strategies and tactics that are required in order to make it work. So for example, right, if we just talk about just the baseline uh, crazy monkey defense, which I actually call CM1 defense because there's different kinds of defense. It's not just only one kind of defensive action. Right. It depends on where I am. But that defensive action doesn't work that well unless I understand the fighting platform that it's supposed to be delivered from. 
unless I know the striking way and the application of strikes that are different to how other people do it, which we call diving board strikes and the reason behind it. And all of this doesn't come out of a competitive environment. This is what people need to understand is I honed those ideas, these skills, obviously coming up as a child and being in violent areas, but definitely in those several years of working the door. I think sometimes people kind of almost, I guess, equate working the door to other parts of the world where, you know, you've got to register with the local police and things like that, and it's highly um, structured and there's an oversight to it. Bouncing in South Africa, especially in those days, was like the Wild West. Mm-hmm. You know, there were firms, basically. Each, everybody had a firm. You belonged to a firm. And fighting was an every night occurrence. And it wouldn't be, un, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon to have two or three fights in a night. And there were people that even went out specifically, that was their thing. That's what they, they got a high on to actually go out and look for a fight. That was their yeah. night out. And this would be a common thing. And in those experiences and realizing what I did is where the crazy monkey defense system originated from. So it's a system. It's not just only defensive action. Yeah, and Can I think it's hard with the internet because people, they're yeah. very quick to make a judgment, like you said, off of a clip. And I, I used to do color commentary for TKO here in Canada. So, you know, like the, the fighting organization that George St. Pierre and Pat Cote and all these guys came out of. And I had seen, I remember seeing it, uh, you know, years ago, um, some guys that were using very similar blocking, uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, similar to kind of the crazy monkey one, right? Uh, defense. And, yeah. But they would not use the same, like you said, they wouldn't use the same platform. They were using the idea of covering the head in a similar way at that distance. But then the hands would go back. They didn't have the hunchback stance. They didn't have, so there's elements missing. But I think for people that when they're looking online, we're very quick to just categorize something from our experience, because of course, that's what we filter everything through. So if you're, if you're a boxer guy, you, you look at it and you go, yeah, okay, he's teaching basic boxing, man. That's no big deal. Of course you do that. But it, if you look at it, you know, and you kind of calm that voice in your head for a second, you can realize, no, no, it's different because the way you're explaining the system is different than anybody who I've, you know, done boxing with. Um, and you can see the same thing when you look at certain people doing jujitsu. You can take 10 jujitsu teachers and they're all doing jujitsu. And it's like, yeah, okay, if you just come in in the room where they're finishing the armbar, the armbar looks pretty much the same for all 10 of them. But how they get to the armbar is not the same. And that's really what's going to help somebody whether and make the difference whether you can apply it or you can't apply it. So sure. if somebody looks at your platform and says, oh, I've seen a block like that. Well, wow, you're missing the whole thing. You're missing everything. You know, like um, I, I, the reason that I have now more familiarity with it is because I don't know when you started to put things online, but um, you recently put up something online that caught my attention and it was a bare knuckle boxing. And I was like, you know what? Man, I've been wanting to see something. And for everybody listening, uh, Rodney didn't give me this because I was getting on the show. I bought this and uh, you should buy it too because uh, it's worth it. And I and everyone who knows me also knows I wouldn't say anything nice about something, especially in the martial arts or fitness, that I didn't like just because someone's on the show. So if I'm saying something nice, it's because I believe it. And uh, I was like, oh, you know what? I've wanted to see what this guy really does for so long. I'm going to get this unit. If it sucks, whatever, it's the cost of going out for dinner, you know, with my girlfriend. It won't be the end of the world. Uh, if it's great, well, then maybe it changes my martial arts forever. So uh, that's, that's totally worth it. So I get it. I start watching it. I'm like, okay, it's good. I like the setup. The platform's good. I was like, wow, okay, he did a good job with the audio and the video, which a lot of people online, they, they don't. So I'm like, okay, it's understandable. It's bite-sized. Let's go. So I start watching. Yeah, my first thing is like, okay, cool. Yeah, I've seen that blog. But then you start to explain it. I'm like, man, you know what? This is what's missing in a lot of my stuff, in a lot of my stand-up, is that explanation of, okay, I've heard the, ra- the range conversations before. I was like, yeah, and then I get in a clinch. and uh, But you put it so nicely and succinctly to have like a blueprint. Almost, you're almost doing to me like for stand-up what, you know, the Gracies did for jujitsu, right? For the floor game. So in the floor game, I always feel like I've got a very clear blueprint of what I want to do. I got a big guy on top of me. I want to get on top of him. I want to use my weight. I want to control the situation. I want to get to a dominant position where I can finish. And with the stand-up with you, it, you're giving a very clear blueprint. It's like, okay, 
you can, if you can hold the range here, this is going to be good. This is what we want to do. We want to hold here. If he fires and I'm able to counter on the way back, that's when I have opportunities. You're very clearly spelling out for people where they will have the opportunity to counter when maybe they can be aggressive. And it's complex standing up because now we're toe to toe. It's even, it's 50, 50, and there's so many variables, but you have a very nice clean way of, of explaining it to offer people that blueprint that again, to me, it's very similar to the ground for anybody doing jujitsu. Who's thinking about improving their striking. I think a crazy monkey is like a, a huge component to simplify striking. And uh, it is complex. Um, oh, absolutely. I appreciate it. I mean, one, of the, one of the reasons that that even came about outside of working the door is I remember going into the boxing gym and sparring, say, five people and doing really, really well. Yeah. Then coming back the next day, sparring the exact same five people and doing terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I just felt like, you know, the whole game just didn't work. Yeah. You know, I was kind of sitting there and thinking, how is that even possible? How can you come in on a Monday and do really well? Yeah. Come in on a Tuesday, same people. And on Tuesday, these guys basically kick your ass. Yeah. There's something wrong there. And I've the reason the, I've had the same exact experience. Yeah. Exactly. And so what I started thinking, yeah. Yeah. So what I started thinking about was, okay, why is that happening? Well, I think the reason is, is that on the day when you actually have a good day, it's just lucky, right? Everything clicks in. Yeah. You're there, you do what you're supposed to do. But you're not necessarily conscious of it. It's mm-hmm. happening subconsciously. Then the next day comes in, for whatever reason, just doesn't work out. You can't achieve the same kind of performance. That was annoying me so much that I decided that I was going to sit down and figure out a game plan. Now, I'm not saying that the game plan wins all fights. Sure. But it puts you in a much better position to be able to have a more consistent performance, which is ultimately what I wanted and what I want to see my students be able to achieve. And what I've able to been able to do over the years of developing this is I can shortcut the process now. So what maybe took me two years to develop, I see my students get that same skill level down in six months. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that's ultimately what people want is, I mean, for self-defense, you want to be safer after every time you leave the gym, you want to have improved, you know, and, and that's a huge thing. And also I think for, like you said, even for the enjoyment of just the training to know that there's a consistency, that there's a blueprint, that it's not random. It's, it's, you know, there are things, if it's not going great, you know, specifically what you can work on. It's like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're getting sucked in. You're not controlling the distance. You're, you're not controlling your, you know, your range today. That's what went wrong. Knowing what it is you need to work on makes a huge difference in the amount of enjoyment somebody can have training and also in how effective they're going to be. Sure. And, that's huge. and also look at the same time, it needs to be intelligent. And so this is one of the things that I really try to push really hard. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I see typically when people do stand up, it's almost like a battle of nutrition. It's a battle yeah. of who take the most punishment. I don't understand that. Why do you want to take punishment if there's no need to take punishment? If there's a better way to do it, if there's a way for you to protect yourself while putting yourself in a position where you can put in your countermeasures, surely that's a much better strategy. Yeah. Not even speaking about the fact of you, we're going to see this more and more going forward. You look at the guys that are in combat sports, the fallout from being hammered in the head like that over and over and over again, there's going to be massive consequences down the road. I don't yeah. understand why people want to do it that way. But I think the reason is, is because it's always been done that way and yeah. people don't know a better way. And then when their coaches, cause that's interesting that you say, Oh, I saw some guys competing and they use something similar to crazy monkey. And I'm not going to mention names, but there have been UFC fighters that have attempted to use some of my material they didn't get it from me. They got it from their coaches. Their coaches got it from one of the products that they bought from me. Yeah. Right. But again, as good as my products are, it's never going to replace one-on-one training. And now it's kind of almost secondhand knowledge and it's not even secondhand knowledge directly from me. It's from a DVD. Yeah, for sure. And so I can actually see when I watch these fights, I can actually see and I know for a fact, just based on what I see, which DVD they bought. Yeah, yeah. For I example, mean, <laughs> there was one DVD set that I did. Yeah. Yeah, there was one DVD set that I did that it wasn't on purpose. It just didn't 
feature in the DVD where there was a specific thing about what you need to do to improve your defensive action. Things like keep your hands moving all the time and so forth. I didn't put that in. Then I saw a particular UFC guy doing it and I could see that he didn't know that. And the reason he didn't know that is because it wasn't on the DVD and his coach didn't know that either because he learned it from the DVD. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, that's the unfortunate thing. Also, the other side of it was, is that when I first started going to the US, in, I think in the early 2000s, and I started teaching seminars, one of the things that I saw was that everybody wanted to learn how to throw, you know, that solid hard punch, but they had no defensive structure. Yeah. And the defensive structure that they did have wasn't as effective as it could be, or it was the kind of defensive structure that takes enormous amount of attributes to pull off. Pull off, Like if we think slipping, bobbing, weaving, those things, I'm not saying they're not effective, yeah. but there's very few people that can use them at a very high level. Yeah, for sure. So I spent a, quite a long time in the formative days of Crazy Monkey Defense, I guess just teaching defensive positioning, getting people to understand why defense is so important because the way that I just, and that's probably the reason why people misunderstand the program and they only think of it as the defensive action because I spent so much time trying to fix people's defense. Right. But what my argument to that is this, is that defense for me, the way that I describe it is psychological armor. And this definitely comes from working the door. Right. If I was dealing with a, a particular threat, and this person suddenly, without warning, laid into me, and I'm seeing stars, it's going to be very, very difficult for me to effectively mount a counter offense. Right. Because all I'm going to worry about right now is trying to survive. You know, you're not even, and even if I try to fight back out of there, it's going to probably be sloppy and I'm probably going to get hurt. Right. And so I realized early on that if you can go to a defensive action when that happens, ride the storm is the way that I describe it. Yeah. And that hasn't been able to make a dent on you. You're still 100% there, fully conscious. Your psychological armor increases because you go to, you, know, you start saying to yourself, I'm still in the fight. Yeah. And his is going to switch. He changes gears from, I'm going to sucker this guy. I'm going to take this guy out to, holy shit, I just threw everything I have at this guy and he's still in front of me. He's still moving. Oh, I, crap. I hope he doesn't fire anything back at me because if that's how well, if that's how hard he is to put away, I'm in for a big, you know, a, a long night. So you, it's, you exact, it's exactly, it's exactly that. I, I can't tell you how many fights I got involved in working the door where you're in a situation where somebody's in front of you. Uh, you go to what I call a bear position. I know Jeff Thompson used to call it the fence. It's a really yeah. good thing to do. Keep space between yourself and the opponent in front of you. And yeah. then, if somebody kicked off and they suddenly started throwing punches, I would go into this defensive action, which is, you know, crazy monkey defense. I would ride that storm. And because I was 100% there, totally conscious and not injured at all, and suddenly, you know, being able to come back, very few people can deal with that. Yeah. Because even, even if you look at how most people teach self-preservation, well, they put it under the guise of reality-based self-defense. Yeah. A lot of it is still predetermined. A lot of it is the guy on YouTube looking amazing. Yeah. But what people don't understand is he's told the guy what to do. He yeah. knows what's coming. So it's very difficult for him to make a mistake. Then on top of it, the guy attacking him leaves his hand out there. The yeah. thing that I tell my students is even if you were the first person to attack, even if you did a preemptive attack, what makes you think that this person's not going to fight back? Yeah, exactly. And when that person starts fighting back and your Jason Bourne moves didn't work in that immediate moment in time, what now? Yeah. I now mean, you're in a fight. Yeah. I started thinking about, I was wondering about this the other day. They were finally, they aired on TV, like the first UFCs again, you know, like the, they haven't shown those in a very long time. Right. Because yeah. it was like back, that's back in the, back in the day where they were promoting it as like, Hey, somebody could die. Right. So they, they, they like to pretend that those don't exist, but they aired them. And it kind of took me way back to, you know, as a martial artist, I mean, I started martial arts when I was seven. And I remember when the first UFC hit, I remember crowding out with my friends, watching it on TV, all of us arguing whether this was real or not. We couldn't figure out, like, is this, is this actually happening? And then we were all arguing, oh, no, the karate guy is going to do this, or this guy's going to do that, or not, of boxers. And, and then I started thinking the other day when I was watching it, and I was like, how come the UFC hasn't saved the martial arts because I remember after the, that, that few changed a lot of people's minds, everybody, like there was almost like a collective wake up call for people doing martial arts. There was a big shift. People started going, Whoa, 
all these things that we had in our head that we were told like, oh, if this guy fights this guy and that guy fights this guy, and if you do this and if you do that, like all these things that you're talking about, which a lot of people refer to as like dissecting the corpse, where you do this amazing demonstration of your badassery. Uh, but you do it on basically like a dead body. It's like, you know, your partner is doing nothing. He's standing there and you're slapping the shit out of him, showing all these hypothetical things you could do, which in reality, you wouldn't do any of them because as soon as the person fights back, all that goes to shit. So the UFC and, and the Gracies kind of exposed that. All the people that thought like, oh no, if a guy goes to tackle me, I'll grab his trap and then I'll squeeze uh, point number four on his uh, kidney and uh, that'll put him in convulsions and uh, then I'll be able to do whatever I want. They realized, oh, actually what will happen is he'll pick me up off my feet, slam me on my face, break my collarbone and my jaw and then continue to pound me. So um, I thought that was going to be a huge wake up. It was for a lot of people, but it seems like we're kind of going full circle back to it now. And we're getting back to like, I've been watching on Facebook, like martial arts guys popping up using the same old tricks, dissecting the corpse, doing all kinds of weird, never would work things. And no one seems to be going, Hey, whoa, that wouldn't work. So, I mean, am I, am I, am I hallucinating or do you think we're kind of coming back around to all that craziness? I think you're right. I mean, I see a lot of it. I think obviously, you know, being on social media allows for this. Anybody can be an expert these days, right? Yeah. And that's, that's just the reality. And if everyone's uh, an expert, then no one's an expert. Yeah. And everybody creates their own system. And the, the, I mean, I just thinking about this as you were talking, I mean, I know of a few guys straight off the bat, right. Who've created their own systems. I know them personally. The only experience of fighting that they've ever had has been on the mat in the dojo. Yeah. They've never actually fought a single time of any real substance out on the street. And if they have, it probably was on a playground when they were a kid. Yeah. You know, they haven't been in sustained violence day in and day out. I think part of the problem here is it's quite complex. I think one is very much now MMA is seen as a sport. Yes. I mean, that's kind of how it's situated. And that allows these guys to then say rubbish like, well, that's a sport and we train for the street. Yeah. And the street is not the same as sport because on the street, you know, I, there's no rules. There's no time limit. This is the kind of reasoning that they give. Right. It's kind of interesting. A lot of the guys that say that are the guys that never do any kind of contact sparring too. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that's because they would be, yeah, they would be exposed, you know, like sure, well, like, straight away. Right. If yeah. you, if, if somebody stepped up and said, dude, stop demonstrating your Jason Bourne stuff yeah. and show me right now that particular sequence that you did against a resisting opponent. Yeah. We're not, even if you know exactly what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you the exact thing you asked for before, but yeah. with one exception, I'm going to fight back. Yeah. The entire thing would completely erode instantly and fall apart. Yeah. And so there's that one thing. I think the other thing is, is that the people that this is peddled to oftentimes, and this is something that isn't talked about. It's kind of interesting. And people could go and do their own kind of, I guess, um, their own research on this. I always find it interesting that most of these reality-based self-defense schools tend to be in the middle upper-class neighborhoods of the world. Mm -hmm. They're not in the barrios. They're not in the favelas. They're not in Soweto, in the townships. They're not in war zones. Yeah. Right. Um, you don't see these schools in every street corner in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? So the market that they are peddling this to are people that do not see violence on a daily basis. They might hear about it. They might read about it, but they're never engaged in it. Right. The closest thing that they know about violence is what they see on the movies on a Hollywood, you know, a Hollywood scene, like the Jason Bourne. Yeah. That's kind of their mindset of what it is. And the human brain is actually hooked up to seek out patterns. That's what it does. And so if somebody comes to you and they go, I have this seven step to excellence, seven step to learning how to protect yourself. And I show you a seven step sequence. The human brain goes, wow, okay, that's cool. And mm -hmm. that must be the answer because yeah. the human brain actually doesn't like chaos. No, it doesn't like resistance. Yeah. It doesn't like failure. Yeah. That's why people try to avoid that as best as they can. Yeah. And so, well they're marketing to people in a way that in a way speaks to them that 
they, they like it. It lights them up. They think it's this must be the ones, right? It's completely yeah. reassuring. And I think actually reassuring. what you just described for people listening that they aren't maybe martial artists, you just described how every fitness guru uh, sells their system. Because what they do is, uh, you know, like, look, learning to do a one-arm handstand is chaos. There are so many variables and they don't, you don't want to hear, well, maybe, like, should I do this? Well, maybe, you know, I, like we always joke what, in what I teach, the answer, you know, our, our mantra should be, maybe it depends. But, you know, people don't like to hear, maybe it depends. They want to hear, listen, if you want to do a one-arm handstand, this is what you do. You do this. Once you get to be able to do this for a certain number of repetitions, then you go to this. Then you, once you can do that for a certain number of repetitions, then you do this, then you do this. It's, and it's very, it seems very linear and they present to you like a system of, you know, this is how you accomplish your calisthenics goals or your gymnastics goals. Um, but things are not linear. It just doesn't work like that. Nothing works like that. You know, um, there's variables and you need somebody with experience uh, to help you understand those variables and uh, give you some feedback and give you some guidance. And then you can make your way through it right from their experience because because they've been there before. Like you said, like these guys teaching have never been there. And maybe I, I, I haven't really thought about it, but I, I think there's a lot to what you're saying about it's almost like. Um, those systems become very popular in areas where you can simulate violence and it's almost enjoyable to go and pretend, you know, to take a gun off a guy to, to feel like, Hey man, I could take this knife off you and smack your face, um, without having to really put that to the test to any degree, just to have that feeling about it. And to some degree, which is really sad, like I took some time off of jujitsu. When I started jujitsu in Canada, there were no jujitsu clubs. So it was right at the beginning, you know, you had to travel. And uh, it was back in the dark ages where, uh, you know, people defended the belt. Like if you rolled with a blue belt, a blue belt was, first of all, a machine. They were incredible. Um, if you actually saw a purple belt, a purple belt was like a unicorn. They were, you know, no, if you, you've told somebody you rolled with a purple belt they were like bullshit man where where did you meet a purple belt and they were like gods they were incredible and uh but they they would smash you they were it wasn't like now like where it's so civilized and uh you know it's like oh yeah man i'm just working on my cross side defense i'll let you pass <laughs> you know it's like no they they murdered you but um, when I came back to jujitsu and, and went around to different schools and started like playing around a bit again um I was mystified, not just about the changes, but also about some of the things that people seem not to know or do anymore. And a lot of the fight was taken out of the jujitsu. I think like a lot of good things changed. Like I, I think there were certain things that definitely made jujitsu more accessible. And like you said before too, a lot of people got hurt in the early days because it was too meathead. It was too rough, you know? Um, and who wants that? Who wants to hurt their neck, their shoulders? You know, how many knees have been sacrificed at the jujitsu altar? Um, but they also seem to have lost like jujitsu was so badass because you could actually use it in a fight. And now yeah. there's guys doing stuff where I think in 10 years, it's going to be hard to find a Brazilian jujitsu black belt that knows how to fight. Like, you know, it's not. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I probably, I mean, I'm not sure when you started jujitsu in Canada. When was it? What, what was it? The, the I got like a, a zero. Uh, I, I always tell people, I always joke because I work on weekends and my life is so upside down with traveling that I have no sense of time. Like I'll literally tell my girlfriend about something that I think happened a year ago. And she'll be like, Sean, that was like six years ago. But that's cute <laughs> that you think that was a year ago. I just yeah. realized I have gray hair the other day. I looked, I was traveling to Hong Kong to teach and I looked in the bathroom mirror. I, maybe I don't have mirrors in my house. I went back to the seat and I told Sarah, I'm like, I have gray hair. She laughed. She's like, you've had gray hair for years. So yeah. um, I started, basically, I saw that first UFC. Um, so I saw that UFC. I was a black belt in karate. I was teaching. I saw the UFC. I kind of freaked out. I was like, I got to I gotta learn this. I got to, you know, kind of like your, your reaction to, uh, you know, seeing Muay Thai and working in the clinch, right? Yeah. It's like, I got to learn this. I learned some wrestling and some boxing from my karate teacher because he was a cop. He had been a cop. So he, he always kind of had more of a pragmatic and practical sense about, you know, what fighting was. And, um, so I, right around that time, I remember they had like one VHS tape that came out. So I, we had guys where we got the VHS. Nobody could afford to get it. So we had to like collectively get it. And, you know, it stayed at one guy's house. We would uh, book time on a squash court. 
and uh, we had no mats. So we would just reserve the time at the YMCA for the squash court and we would go in and beat the shit out of each other trying to figure out the jujitsu from the VHS. And then I went down to the States and I took a seminar with Hoist and, you know, and then shortly after that, you know, guys, blue belts started teaching in different areas and people started to spread out. So it was, it was right around when it kind of kicked off with the UFC. That's right around when I started. But, um, Back then in, in those days, especially once we got like some purple belts and some guys in, you know, in Canada that knew what they were kind of doing. Um, yeah, things were just, I remember like, you know, defending a shoot and my, well, there was a purple belt there who had been teaching me and uh, one of the fighters was taking me down. He took me down off a double leg twice. And uh, uh, the guy who was teaching me, his name was Mark Colangelo and Mark was just sitting there. He had just finished rolling and he goes, if he takes you down one more time, I'm going to get up and punch you in the face. And I was like. <laughs> Okay then. So sprawl. That's what you're saying. I'm I'm highly motivated to sprawl. Gotcha. You know? So that's <laughs> very so, different so, than what, what's going on now, you know? Yeah, I think in a in a very similar way our stories are, are, are parallel. I mean, I saw the first UFC, my attitude to it was this is real. I can yeah. see it's real. And what I realized is I don't know any of this ground stuff. Mm-hmm. That was a pretty good stand-up guy you know good striker but had no ground and so i immediately started trying to find a way to learn and when i started uh, you know basically back in the day in south africa there were no people in the country doing jiu-jitsu except for one guy in cape town um, and myself we were the only people i mean ultimately i became south africa's first brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt mm. but you know my f- kind of first initial attraction to jiu jitsu was exactly what you're talking about I-, I mean back in those days there were no competitions and things like that or definitely nothing in south africa it didn't exist yeah. and my only reason for learning jiu jitsu was i want to incorporate this into my game yeah. i need to know this from a fighting standpoint and so even to this day even when i teach to this day a lot of what I teach from a jujitsu perspective is still self-preservation because that's the era I came from. I know like a lot of times people call it old school. Oh, those guys do old school jujitsu. It's kind of funny to hear that. Right. But that to me is really important. I mean, ultimately Brazilian jujitsu was and is a martial art. And if you're talking about the initial Gracies and, you know, the UFC and the Gracie garage, um, you know, action fights and all yeah. those kinds of things. I mean, it was about real fights, right? It was about self-preservation. And so I think that's really important. And, and as you noted, it's, it's disappearing. I mean, it's not uncommon to go to a lot of jiu-jitsu schools, really good at the competitive aspect of jiu-jitsu. And it has come a far way. I, I mean, there's a lot of things I love about jiu-jitsu now mm-hmm. that – you know, in the past, what was my least favorite thing? As you noted, you know, it was just balls to the wall, 100 miles an hour, everybody smashing each other. Now there's a lot more civility. There's a lot more kind of understanding of playing the game and having fun. So you don't have those kinds of experiences. But one of the crucial elements of jiu-jitsu is disappearing. And that's the ability to apply your jiu-jitsu skill in a self-preservation environment. And there are a lot of things that you can do in competitive jiu-jitsu, which would get you seriously, seriously injured in a street fight. Yeah. And one thing that freaks me out that I've always disagreed with people is people will tell me like there's guys, you know, they love to play, let's say deep half or something like that, you know, where that'd be great. I could sit back and elbow you in the face all day. Um, if we're doing that in a real fight and, or, you know, and they'll go, yeah, but I wouldn't do that in a fight. It's like, yes, you would, because you train that every day, every morning you come to jujitsu or every night you're training jujitsu and you're training those kind of moves. You're making that part of who you are and the choices that you make. So you can't tell me that when the pressure is on, you're not going to instantly fall back into one of those moves. You can't say, oh, no, I, I just wouldn't do that in a fight. I do that when I'm playing jujitsu. But if I was fighting, I would be very different. It's like, no, you, you wouldn't be. You're, you're training a certain way. It's becoming a habit. It's very hard to make a habit out of, you know, doing these moves. And you're, you're doing that. You're accomplishing that. So you won't be able to switch back and forth. And uh, I think a lot of people are, are kind of, you know, they, they fool themselves into thinking that they can train one way, but when it came to a real fight, that they would be able to just switch back and forth. I don't think it works like that. Or yeah. at least from my experience, it doesn't. No, I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. Of course, I mean, obviously with that said, right, um, if I had a choice and somebody came to me and said, hey, what should I go and train 
you know, for self-preservation, yeah. um, one of the things I would say is go do jujitsu, right? Yeah. I mean, because at least having jujitsu is better than most of the other stuff that's out there. And I think that's also another thing that comes up quite a lot, especially in that reality-based self-defense sphere, is that they'll say, oh, those guys do sport, right? They, mm-hmm. I mean, what they don't really understand is that there are things in the role or in sparring that you develop that you can't develop anywhere else. You're not going to develop in a drill in a self-defense kind of drill, only in sparring do you develop these things. Things like timing, distancing, mm-hmm. tenacity, yeah. grit, the ability to take a punch, to give a punch, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, as much as I would like people to be able to defend every shot that comes in, the reality is you're going to get hit. Yeah. And it's how you attach to that hit in that moment when it happens, that's going to determine what you're going to do next. And so unless you actually battle testing this material, you're never going to know how to apply it in a similar kind of environment. Of course, you know, there's only so far and or so close we can get to reality through training, inspiring, but it's better than nothing, right? And it's closer yeah. to the reality than doing a demonstration, having a guy who's com- basically compliant. Because even if the guy attacks me, if he attacks me and he holds his head out there and he doesn't do anything else after my initial counter offense, he's been compliant. That's yeah. not reality everybody's going to fight back. I'm going to fight back. If I'm talking to somebody and suddenly he decides he's going to preempt me with a strike and he doesn't immediately take me out, I'm coming back. But now I'm coming back with everything I have. And you better be prepared to deal with that. And most people are not going to be prepared to deal with that unless they train in a combat sports environment because they've had those experiences. Yeah, and they've you dealt know? with people resisting over and over every day, exactly. right? That's, the, that's still the beauty of jujitsu. I mean, that's why my kids do it. You know, I put my kids in it because, again, like you said, it's, it's not perfect, but um, I would like, I like to see them there and, and also sometimes failing, getting caught, really not being able to overcome the other person and then having to deal with that failure and, and know like, man, I couldn't do it today. And that's a great growth for them. You know, that's a great learning experience. And then also having the opposite where they were like almost getting crushed. Nothing was going right. All of a sudden, you know, I see my daughter turn something around. She sweeps somebody, get on top of them. And then she's controlling the situation. And that's great because again, it's real, you know? Yes, it's not a full on fight, but yeah, that person was really resisting. That person did not want to go over and she used her technique and she was determined and she had that grit, you know, to, to push through and to, to change thing around. And that carries over to life. So that's a great thing. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, if you if you're not failing, if, yeah. you, if you don't have that that failure experience, you are setting yourself up for the ultimate failure. Yeah. If we're talking about self preservation, yeah. because when things don't go right in that environment, in the real world, in a real interpersonal violent encounter, when they're not going right, you're not going to be able to recover. You're not going to be able to be adaptable. You're not going to be able to come back because you've only ever trained success. You've only ever trained that you sure. are winning. Yeah. And you know, anybody that does jujitsu or boxing or any of those combat sports knows that the greatest teachers that they have is when they fail. That's the greatest teaching moment because that gives you the opportunity to now develop the skills that you need to develop so it doesn't happen again. And that's but if you so don't ever do versus arts. a successful person, there's no yeah. way that you can ever develop that. Yeah. And that's what's so great about training martial arts. Even somebody who's not like they say, well, listen, I'm not, I don't live in a violent neighborhood. I'm not violent. I'm not this. I'm not that. It's like, listen, even if you never get into a fight in your life, that's great. You're very fortunate, but you could benefit so greatly from this kind of training and from spending time doing something like this, because it does give you that. It gives you that tenacity. It gives you that. It sharpens the will. It sharpens the focus. It gives you some introspection into, you know, who you really are. There's so many great things that can come of it. That That's why I like to, you know, talk to martial artists, not just, you know, people that are in the fitness world, because I'm always kind of amazed when I have, you know, trainers that will come to my seminars around the world. And look, some of these guys and girls, they look like they're carved out of stone. You know, they're like, they're incredibly conditioned human beings. Uh, they're very interested in physical culture. Um, they can do amazing things with their bodies. And yet they don't know the first thing about defending themselves. And every other <laughs> living thing has some sort of, you know, uh, ability to defend itself. I mean, a plant <laughs> can defend itself. Uh, and yet some of these people, they have nothing, you know, um, that to me, it is a huge disconnect. It doesn't make sense. And it's, it, you, if I got, when people ask me, what do you teach? I like to tell them, 
I hate that the word, word lately, everybody's become a movement teacher. I don't know really what the hell that is. Um, I like to tell people I teach physical competency. And uh, that's just physical competency across the board. That's not the sexiest sounding thing. But I think at the bare minimum, human beings should be physically competent. If you're walking and you encounter a fence, you should be able to navigate your way over, around, under, whatever the case may be. You should be a competent human being moving through the world. And because one, you'll enjoy your life more. Two, you'll have more success. And part of physical competency is knowing how to handle yourself. You, you won't win every fight. You won't win everything. But if you know how to handle yourself, I mean, every other animal can. Every other animal has something that it can mount as a defense. And if you're going to look like a walk around looking like you have the body of a Ferrari, you should be able to perform like one uh, in all facets, you know? Sure. Um, yeah, and absolutely. I, agree. I, I think it's important. And I think like when I expose... Uh, sometimes fitness people to martial arts, they kind of like their eyes light up at first, you know, they, they don't want to do it. But then when they first do it, they're like, Oh, this is kind of like a great expression of all this physicality I've been developing. And uh, I think that's an amazing thing. It's an amazing gift to give people, especially if they're going to do it, why not do it also in a way that's real, that can really help them. Like, you know, like you said, and the, the sports stuff is really cool. There's some great things. And I think you, you wrote in one of your blogs, you know, that, it would be great if more fighters were using, you know, crazy monkey. That would be, of course, very cool. But ultimately, you want to make sure people are using this and it's benefiting them to defend themselves in, a, in real situations, you know. And uh, yeah. so to me, it's like if someone's going to train, you're going to get all the side benefits no matter what training you do. So that's great. But also do something that you could really use that just in case you ever really need it. And it's there, you know, it's like the seatbelt. You put the seatbelt on hoping you never need it. But if you ever need it, you're going to be so happy you wore it. You know, you're going to be so happy you learned something you can actually, you know, you can actually use from somebody who actually thought about it and wanted to help people, you know, to give them a system that would work like yours. Sure. No, absolutely. I agree. Uh, for people that are listening now, they're getting kind of interested there. Uh, I mentioned the online thing. You have a few different online mods that people can, can take a look at. Um, I think really like even the bare knuckle one sounds like really kind of like, you know, the like hardcore or whatever, but it, it's not, I think it's accessible. You, you lay it out in a way where it's just, Hey, it's bare knuckle because we're not talking about boxing gloves, right? Because boxing gloves are going to change the game. So I think it's accessible for anyone. Even if they, they have like zero knowledge of striking, this would be a very cool place to start to get ideas on how to put things together. Um, the importance of footwork, the importance of movement, the importance of defense, like you were saying. So I think that, that could give them a really good exposure. Um, you have a few other mods also that uh, people can look at. What are they about? Well, I, I just brought out a new uh, – look, I've got some downloads there too, right? So there's yeah. some download um, – material um the thing you're talking about is an online course so you have yeah. to access it online i brought on i brought a new online course uh online probably a couple of weeks ago modified necktie talking yeah. about trying to work out of the clinch working knees and elbows um there's a free course self-preservation course on there where it's, it's a short course but it's pragmatic it's uh talking about the realities of what you need to know quickly in order to protect yourself of course it's not the whole thing but yeah. it's a good start and then i've got another course that i call full contact living that one's also free um, and that one's really more about taking the lessons that i've learned on the mat and how you apply them in your everyday life so there's quite a few things there but i think like you said i think the bare knuckle one the reason i, I kind of decided on that name bare knuckle because i wanted to make that distinction so people understood that it's not a boxing program per se Although, of course, anything that I teach in there could be used in MMA, could be used in a boxing oh, environment, sure. any kind of combat sports environment, actually, if there's striking involved. Yeah. Um, so it'll cross over there really nicely. But I wanted to show what it actually entails and what it's going to take in order to use your striking-based platform, specifically hands, because that's what it focuses on, with no gloves on. Yeah. And that really is where that comes from, is from all those – that those time spent outside the door because pretty much everything that I do in that course are things that I've used at some point on that seven year journey when I've had to deal with people in interpersonal violence. And it's so nicely laid out. Like really it's, it's really clear. I'll, I'll finish a video and I like the length also the length of time you have in the videos is really kind of perfect, you know, because you manage to in a concise way, get the information across 
and then it's just short and it's just short enough that you know you can kind of sit there with with the lesson you know like it's like yeah. okay I'm I'm yeah it's like oh the lesson about the footwork okay the lesson about you know uh, why I want to come in maybe with the jab and you know the the diving board jab and cross and not come in with the hook right so everything is very clear again it feels kind of like a blueprint uh, to me very much like that jujitsu blueprint it's I think even for a beginner it's such a sensible place for them to to start. And uh, to get exposed to striking. And if it's somebody who's been striking for a while, they may have the tools. They may, like you even say it when you're talking about the initial stance. You're like, you know, I know even if you feel like you know this, um, still please listen. And so as soon as you said that, I kind of laughed because, of course, I was thinking, okay, so now what is it I'm going to think I know? And then you start and I'm like, okay, yeah, so I think I know this. And then you kept talking and I'm like, "Ah, okay, but yeah, I don't do that. I'm actually doing what he's saying not to do. That's probably what I do. So... All right. What, what? What? How would it be different if I do what Rodney's saying? And then I started to kind of play around with it, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, he's right. It was different. It's not what I'm doing." And I, I think it's hard for people. That's that's part of the hard thing with the way that you know all these things go. Like it's amazing. We have something now that we didn't have years ago. I wouldn't have been able to see you do this. I would have had to just go to a seminar. I would have been have to been so motivated. I jump on a plane and go to a seminar, uh, which is also great because nothing's going to replace that. These don't replace it. But I think this, if someone looks at it the right way, meaning if they look at it really, truly with an open mind, and when you tell them like, okay, I know you think you know these moves, take a look at them again and listen to what I'm saying. I think even a very experienced striker, if they watch those videos and they're honest with themselves, they're going to realize when they're done watching them that that's not what they're doing they in fact don't know or aren't doing what you're doing. The way you put it together is different. And I get why somebody can see a two minute clip and think they know this, but you know, I, I am no problem admitting that, no, this is not at all what I was doing. And this way is better. There's no question. And look, I totally appreciate that. Right. But I think you're right. I think it's a really good course for people to start off on, um, especially if they want to have the experience of what do I actually teach from a boxing based platform? Yeah. Obviously, like I said, it's bare knuckles, so it's without the gloves on. It's a good start. It goes through the formative structure. One of the important things that I've tried to do with these courses is make them organic. And so if I get feedback from people and they say, Hey, that video was really good, but maybe you can go into more depth on this specific thing that you noted. I'm going to continue to add to the course. So I'm not oh, sure when awesome. you joined up for the course. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I've been adding more and more to it all the time. There's still another section going to be coming online on that course where I'm going to start talking about how do you actually you fight out of the clinch? How do you fight out of a close mm. quarter position yeah. with those strikes? So that's going to be coming on board. And my goal is to continuously develop the courses based on feedback from the people that have taken them. Yeah, that's great. No, I mean, it's amazing. I think that's such a great thing for people. And uh, apart from the course, like doing the online stuff, which is great, I think just to kind of whet people's appetites and to give them the idea, um, because nothing really does replace the one-on-one. And I know you travel quite a bit. You're constantly traveling uh, around the world, giving seminars. Um, What's the easiest place for people to find where you have a seminar date coming up? Uh, where you're going to be and where they can get to uh, actually train with you in person. I think what they should do, the easiest thing is if they go onto Facebook and they just search for the crazy monkey fan page, Yep, it'll come up and they can just join. It's free. Yep. Um, join that. And then on that fan page, right at the top of the page, there's a sticky and on that sticky is all the seminars that I'm doing. And I, and obviously I keep updating it, you know, as the year goes on because you know new things keep coming in. All yeah. the time. For example, I'm going to be in August. I've got my annual training camp in Malaysia. Um, then in September, I'm going to be in Norway. I'm likely going to be in the UK. Then I'm back home. I've got some special force operators coming down to do some close quarter work with me uh, and work some of the self-preservation material. And then we've got another camp in Portugal in December and one in Thailand in the same month. So there's lots of things happening. Um, and the best place to find it. Like I said, do a search for Crazy Monkey fan page and that'll come up on Facebook and then they can just join from there. 
That's awesome. What I'm going to do is also I'll put wherever I post this, I'm going to put the fan page. I'll put it underneath. So when this goes up and it goes live, you guys listening, you'll be able to find it easy. You won't even have to type in and search. You won't even have to ask yourself, can I spell crazy monkey? I'm going to do all the work for you because that's, you know, that's the links that I go for the people that listen. Uh, I just want to thank you, Rodney, so much for coming on. Uh, You know, it really was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I, I think, as things kind of go on, the world's become smaller and people have been able to get access to more information. But as I I like to tell my students, unfortunately, even though we have access to more information, I don't think we're necessarily using it in a great way. And I don't see by and large that people are are getting smarter from the access. We're getting exposed to a lot of things and it's getting harder for people to know what's good and what's not. And like, you know, the example you gave with uh, some MMA fighters is they're learning second, third and fourth hand from somebody that only learned from a, a video that the depth of knowledge is not there. The depth of experience is not there in these cases, you know, and uh, you can tell us when somebody has experience like yourself, when you ask them a question, you can hear a lifetime behind the answer. And, uh, you know, it's very important for me to expose people to that. And no matter what it is, whether it's, uh, you know, physical culture is working out or if it's martial arts, I want people to understand there's a very big difference between talking to someone who has lived something and has devoted their life to breaking it down and to transmitting it and to teaching it and really helping others uh, versus someone who saw a clip and is trying to teach what they saw in a video clip. And, sure, uh, you know, I'm afraid one day we're going to wake up and it's going to be very hard to find a real expert that no, no one, it'll be like the early days where we were trying to find a blue belt to teach us. And everyone thought a blue belt was impossible to find. Well, finding a real master in something uh, 10 years from now might be very, very difficult if people don't understand how to look. So, um, you know, one of the things is the easiest things is you can play this uh, podcast back and listen to any question that I asked Rodney, listen to the depth of, of the uh, answer. And uh, then, you know, you're dealing with somebody who's really lived and spent time with the material. They're not just copying it and regurgitating it. That's a very, very different thing. Thank you so much for all your hard work, for everything that you're putting out to make uh, martial arts work for people and to make people safer. Um, which is a huge thing. You know, a lot of people that get into uh, teaching, a lot of people that get into physical culture, they get into it for themselves. They get into it because it's a way that they're going to make money, uh, which is fine. But ultimately, everything is about them. Um, With what you're doing, uh, you know, you're creating something that when you, uh, when you're, uh, you know, when you've left this uh, planet, you can rest assured that you left something that made people safer. If you make one person safer on the planet, that's an incredible thing. If you made a bunch of people safer, that's a really amazing thing. So thank you for all your work. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much. Cool, man.